Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. How do you like being embarrassed? Not many people do, I suspect. It can get very painful to be criticized in front of a group. That old advice to give praise in public and criticism in private, that's really nothing more than a secular conversion of the Eighth Commandment and the biblical mandate to confront a person with his or her sin in private first. When confrontations due to personal differences happen in front of people that we know, particularly in front of family and friends, it can be doubly painful. We'd like to think that those with whom we are closest would be the ones who would stick up for us. We hope that they will come to our assistance and our aid and our defense in those situations in which we're getting picked on. But experience tells us that that isn't always the case, is it? Sometimes when we're being embarrassed, they just as soon crawl away into the woodwork too. To silently slip away before the rest of the crowd realizes that they are associated with us. And it's all because they don't want to be embarrassed either. And so in today's gospel lesson, we have Jesus. Fresh off of his tour de force in the region around the Sea of Galilee, By any measure, his ministry was a big splash down at the lake. Plenty of preaching, plenty of healings, plenty of miracles. And it even picked up an entourage of sorts. Yes, they might have been a rather eclectic and scruffy bunch, but they were mostly loyal and mostly dependable. It seemed like everyone around the lake by now had heard of Jesus. He could hardly move around. There were so many people who wanted to get a glimpse of him, hear a word from him, get a little piece of him. Now, an ordinary man would shout, Enough! and flee away from all of the pressure and all of the attention. But this was no ordinary man. Just in the past few days, Jesus had accomplished a lot. He'd overcome the devil in driving out the demons from that possessed garrison man. He'd overcome the world, turning all those scoffers to shame after they'd laughed at his saying that Jairus' daughter was not dead but merely sleeping. And he'd overcome the sinful flesh, healing that woman who'd suffered from 12 years of bleeding. That's quite a week, to be sure. Maybe a trip back to Nazareth was in order. The native son made good, returning to bask in the admiration of his hometown. And so from the Sea of Galilee, Jesus heads westward to his boyhood home, the disciples in tow. And not just because his earthly parents had raised him right, but also because of who he is, the Sabbath comes along and the Lord of the Sabbath heads to church. He does not head to the Galilean equivalent of the golf course or the swap meet or the boat show. He heads to church. And he doesn't just put in an appearance so that his mom and his siblings wouldn't be embarrassed. He actually participates in worship and in Bible study. He even speaks up and teaches the hometown folks a few things. St. Mark tells us, many who heard him were amazed. 
Well, that's a good start. But even there, it only says many were amazed. Not everybody in Nazareth apparently was overwhelmed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. This man, because after all, Jesus was just a local boy all grown up. Just a carpenter. Just one kid out of a family of several siblings. And this man, because, well, just because, that's all he could really be, right? What is this wisdom that he has been given, that he even does miracles, they ask? In other words, what makes him so special? He's just an ordinary guy. They got their noses out of joint. They took offense at him, we're told. Well, the eternally begotten Son of God isn't about to take this slap in the face too hard, but it still probably had to sting. They weren't exactly worshiping Asherah poles or the golden calf here, but they had still rejected him. They'd still turned away from the word of God. They'd still sinned. Now, if Jesus were capable of being embarrassed, I think this would have been the time, no doubt. And he had to know that it had to be awkward for the disciples and for Jesus' family, too. None of them would have wanted him to be rejected. Just when he comes home to convey the good news here of the kingdom to those who knew him best. But the honor and the respect that should have been his are not to be. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus could not do any miracles there except to heal a few sick people. Now the point was not that Jesus was somehow limited in his power or he lacked the ability to perform miracles here. Rather, it's a sign that the Nazarene's lack of faith, which amazed even Jesus, impeded the work of the kingdom. Where there is no faith, then the gifts of God go unrecognized and unrealized. What is this wisdom, the people of Nazareth asked? That is, what special knowledge had Jesus received that enabled him to perform the miraculous healings and the other signs that they had heard about? They were certain that it had to be all some sort of a magic trick. No way could this carpenter have it within himself to heal people and perform the other signs. Someone must have given him a secret to do these other things. That's the only possible explanation. And why him, of all people? They took offense because they were jealous, because they were selfish, because they were hard-hearted. Instead of thanking God for the blessings of hearing His Word and witnessing His power in their lives, they reject Him. And instead, they elevate their own wisdom, and they judge Jesus unworthy of their respect. Over the centuries, almost all of the problems that have plagued the church have arisen because someone or some group has claimed to have special knowledge or wisdom that isn't available to everyone. Likewise, virtually all of the world's false religions which draw people away from the salvation offered in Christ are based upon some supposed special enlightenment provided to the select few rather than available to all. How different this is from Christianity in which we are to trust that God's salvation in Jesus Christ comes to all who hear His gospel and do not reject it. 
We heard St. Peter say to the crowd on Pentecost, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. The atonement of Christ's death is for all. And it is to be proclaimed to all nations. But it is not uncommon for our human wisdom to question the wisdom of God, is it? After all, the gospel makes no sense if we think about it. There are an awful lot of very worldly, intelligent, and successful, and respected people who scoff at the gospel and at Christianity. Many of the rich and the famous and the so-called beautiful people make fun of us who trust in the death death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and as our hope for salvation and eternal life. They consider Christians to be fools because we follow an illogical religion, a faith that speaks of salvation by unilateral grace, not by performance of our own works, a faith in which God becomes human rather than humans aspiring to be gods, a faith in which their God dies for them rather than them dying for their God. Just what kind of intelligent person could be a Christian anyway? What kind of fool are you? Karl Marx, one of the fathers of communism, wrote that religion is the opiate of the masses. Now, he was speaking of religion in general, but in 19th century Germany, where he lived, the primary religion to which he had exposure all around him and which influenced his thought was Christianity. Now, Marx and his philosophy have been shown by history to be failures. And yet still much of our postmodern and seemingly sophisticated society want to retain his ideas toward faith, eliminating any dependence upon the divine and trusting rather in the thoughts and the abilities of humanity. Live for yourself, the world's wisdom tells us, time and time again. Live for today. Do what feels right and what makes you feel good. Don't let anybody tell you what to do or what to believe. You are your own God. And as fallen and as sinful as we are, we sometimes listen. We skip church occasionally, missing out on the gifts God offers us because the God of our body is tired from chasing the God of the bottle so that the God of our lust will be a little less self-conscious. Or we don't have the time or the inclination to study God's Word because we focus on the God of our job to fill the God of our bank account so that we can pay the gods of our car or our house or our vacation. And perhaps we even worship the God of our own bodies, obsessed with how we look or what we weigh or what we wear. Maybe Marx was right. Religion is the opiate of the masses. He just didn't realize that the religion that we often follow is the, not that of the divine being, but of ourselves. And we follow these false and foolish and failing gods because we apply the wrong sort of wisdom to try to make ourselves successful. St. Paul wrote this to the church at Rome. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. That sounds an awful lot like us when we focus ourselves on using our own wisdom to attain our own desires. And Paul goes on to say, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Yep, that's us all right. And Paul continues with a strong warning and a condemnation for those who would fall prey to this so-called wisdom. Now Paul was a pretty smart guy, a real intellectual by anyone's standards. He'd gone to the best schools and had the best teachers, finished first in the class. He was considered by many to be a man who could write his own ticket. And until he was confronted on that road to Damascus by Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit working through God's Word, he was pretty full of himself and his own wisdom too. But it was after that change that God used Paul to tell the world that all of our self-generated knowledge and wisdom does not amount to a hill of beans. He used Paul to tell us that God does things that appear foolish when viewed with worldly wisdom. But this foolishness is actually the wisdom of how His perfect will works to preserve us and to save us from ourselves and from our sin, from the world, from the devil, even from death itself. The wisdom that Jesus has, the wisdom that these folks at Nazareth wondered about, it's not just those divine attributes that enabled Him to heal the sick or to do the other miracles. Rather, it's a wisdom that we oftentimes don't want to hear. That we in the world are God's creations and not our own. That we are sinful. That we are doomed to death eternally without a Savior. But also that we cannot be our own saviors. But that we can only depend on His ability to keep the law. His willingness to sacrifice His life for the atonement of our sins. His resurrection that ensures our eternal life. But there's a lot more to it than that. Jesus does not just have the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. As Paul wrote elsewhere to the church at Corinth, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. A short time later, Paul wrote, It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus remains for us the only wisdom that truly matters. And the seeming foolishness of the gospel remains the only way in which that wisdom is conveyed to us. Jesus is wisdom. Pure wisdom, heavenly wisdom. Wisdom beyond our human understanding. Because Jesus is the visible expression that we have from God about His perfect plan of salvation. Thus it is Jesus that we preach. It is Jesus into whose death and resurrection you are baptized. It is Jesus who declares to you, I forgive you all your sins. 
And it is Jesus whose body and blood cleanses our souls, strengthens our faith, and provides us the medicine of immortality. Jesus has promised that when we cast aside our own wisdom and we trust in Him, we can do all things and receive all that we need. He has left it to us to speak the truth of the Gospel to a world that considers it foolish. Paul writes again, this time to the Ephesians. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has promised that He will go with us on that mission to strengthen us and to support us. Jesus told His disciples in the Gospel of St. Luke, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Finally, then, we need the continual bolstering of God's wisdom for our lives so that we can resist the lies and the temptations and, yes, even the foolishness of a perishing world that has come to believe that it has all the wisdom, that it has all the answers. We depend instead upon the wisdom that comes from God's Word, the wisdom that comes down to us from above, the wisdom that is in Christ Jesus, the wisdom that is Christ Jesus. And this I pray for you, the people of our St. Paul congregation, just as St. Paul did for the congregation at Ephesus. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. In Jesus' name, Amen.